Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today for the hour is Gary Paul Navhan. He's a nature writer, food and farming activist, proponent of conserving the links between biodiversity and cultural diversity. He's been honored as a pioneer in the local food movement and seed-saving community. And as the WK, uh, W.K. Kellogg Endowed Chair in Sustainable Food Systems at University of Arizona Southwest Center, he works with students, faculty, and nonprofits to build a more just, nutritious, sustainable, and climate-resilient food shed spanning the U.S.-Mexico border. He's also personally engaged as an orchard keeper, wild foods forager, and pollinator habitat restorationist, working from his small farm in Patagonia, Arizona, near the Mexico border. Uh, his 24 books include Food, Genes, and Culture, Eating Right for Your Origins, and Growing Food in a Hotter, Drier Land, Lessons from Desert Farmers on Adapting to Climate Uncertainty. He's a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award and other honors, and uh, he was in Logan most recently in October, where he gave a presentation at Utah State University. Uh, Professor Nebhan, welcome to the program. I'm so grateful to be here with you and your listeners. Appreciate you taking the time to uh, be with us. I wonder if we could start where you start in your book, uh, Growing Food in a Hotter, Drier Land. I, I was, uh, maybe this validated feelings that a lot of us have had to read that uh, you at a certain point in a, in a farming experience uh, moved to the, uh, I guess, the base of the San Francisco mountains and, and we're going to try your hand at dry farming, I think. And you became a bit depressed about this climate uncertainty. Well, could... that's right. Ironically, I was... Uh closer to the Arizona-Utah border than I'd ever lived, and was thinking that it would be far easier to farm there than in the low Sonoran Desert near Tucson, where I lived most of my adult life. And we uh, found that uh, keeping some Navajo churro sheep um, was incredibly difficult without buying hay, simply because uh, every time I sowed grass in the pastures, we had a drought, and I'd irrigate and the seedlings would come up and the birds would get them all because there was nothing else to eat. It was a period of five incredibly tough years of drought and wildfires there, as much of the West has had. And then uh, climate uncertainty, not just uh, drought hit me in innumerable ways, including uh, catastrophic freezes as late as June 28th and as early as September 6th. So. I was humbled by the experience and went into kind of despair until I met some uh, farmers in other places who were adapting to that uncertainty. And uh, I'll, I'll ask you to tell me about, a bit about uh, some of those uh, wonderful uh, mentors, you might call them. And, and you that brought you to the attitude that uh, we should stop the hand-wringing and, and there are things we can do. I wonder if you tell us about uh, your friend uh, Aziz, do you call it uh, Busfiha? I was in Morocco um, tracking down some stories for one of my books about uh, food and agriculture when some people listened to what I was doing and said, well, you have to meet Aziz. Do you know about Aziz? And it ends up that he is a sort of Sufi mystic and farmer who is restoring an entire chain, not just one, but an entire chain of desert farming oases uh, near the mountains uh, outside of uh, Fez, Morocco, one of the oldest areas uh, that we know where oasis agriculture occurred. And he talked about uh, how we need to draw on the diversity of the seeds and fruit trees and human perspectives that we have to create sort of a network between rural dwellers and urban dwellers who are moving in the same direction for positive change in our food systems. And he said it so tangibly, and his own uh, family residence was so diverse that it seemed that if it was possible there, it's possible here. And he talks about, this was interesting to me, the natural ecosystem, but also the cultural ecosystem. That's right, and I have to say that's one thing that strikes me about um, the historic Mormon community understanding of food security, that this isn't simply about uh, getting good yields. It's um, putting food away, using water conservatively, um, trying to help your neighbors when they have calamities, and providing some food backup for them. 
And so food security has to be done at a community level. And, and I think that's what was evident to me in Morocco. And that's what's been evident to me when I've had the blessing of spending time in small rural communities in Utah, where there's been a hundred-year unbroken chain of that kind of uh, ethics and, and sort of time-tried strategies. You say you came to a realization uh, about our food system as a whole, talking uh, very macro, that it's played a major role in generating the greenhouse emissions that have accelerated climate change. Well, that's right. Uh, we can uh, claim that at least a fifth of our greenhouse gas emissions come directly from practices on the farm and the production of the inputs, such as fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides that go into our farming, as well as the fossil fuel use to farm and pump water. But in just as much uh, greenhouse gas emissions, if not more, come from what happens after the food leaves the farm gate and goes through eight different hands, perhaps travels 1,200 miles uh, to um, grocery stores. So the whole food supply chain right up to the kitchen um, actually creates more greenhouse gas emissions than most farms. And the good news is that small and medium-scale farming, according to several studies, has the greatest capacity to leverage positive change to reduce our carbon footprint because people can switch to solar uh, pumps, photovoltaic pumps, or wind generation. They can use biodiesel in their tractors. They can uh, sequester carbon through fruit tree production and other perennials. So the good news is that um, all of this is scalable. Small, medium, and large-scale agriculture can shift and be one of the most positive human activities in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So what are the principles then? And you're, that, that surprises me to, to hear you say that uh, large-scale agriculture could, could make a shift to, to be more positive in this, this regard. Well, it's, it's a little bit like uh, turning the trajectory of a cruise ship as opposed to that of a canoe. Uh, there's much more capital investment in doing things in big agriculture the way it's been done. But we need to include big agriculture and sustainability. We need to make sure that, that uh, this isn't something of just three to uh, 50 acre farms. And so there's, I don't want to disparage anyone who's trying to uh, build in these uh, principles into larger scale agriculture. It's just a little bit more difficult process. So what are the principles? Um, efficient water delivery. We have to be good plumbers. <laughs> we have to rely on the rain as much as possible and even consider using uh, sources of water like uh, uh, gray water and uh, treated wastewater as golf courses across the country are already doing. Then water retention in the soil is enormously important. Delivering the water right to the crop roots but building up soil moisture holding capacity and uh, that's so important because we can, just by composting and adding organic amendments, increase the moisture holding capacity of some desert soils fivefold. And that enormously increases uh, the capacity to hold water both during droughts and during floods when you don't want it to all run off and damage irrigation systems. And then, of course, there's what I've done most of my work on over my career, and that's arid adapted crops. Hmm. Uh, now, your friend uh, Aziz talked about um, seeds, and I know you've, you've studied a lot with, with this, and, and diversity, um, whereas the, sort of the industrial farming has come to, to uh, rely on hybrid uh, seeds, which, which ramp up production. But but you're I guess you're agreeing that uh, we need to get, get more diverse with the, with the seeds that might in the short term lower production in the long term would uh, would increase it. Well, let's take this from two angles. First of all, across the country, uh, our land grant agricultural colleges are now endorsing what's being called low input, high diversity agriculture with crop rotation systems of mixed crop pastures or um, many species in vegetable plots, uh, 
grain and legume mixtures for cereal uh, production that um, really reduce the cost of weed management and pest management because those populations that then compete with our crops don't build up and overcome them. So we're seeing like an 88% reduction in my friend Matt Liebman's studies in Iowa of herbicide spraying simply because of this low input, high diversity strategy uh, being done uh, with cereal grains and legumes for feed and for forage. Now let's take that to the next step of uh, people who are growing community supported agriculture, vegetable plots or fruit orchards. My own orchard has 80 different fruit and nut varieties so that if we have a catastrophic um, freeze or a late frost or an early freeze or drought midsummer, it will affect some of those varieties, but not all varieties. So it's that simple notion of let's not put all our eggs in one basket. Let's diversify the flowering times, the fruiting times, the water needs, et cetera, of the tree crops that we grow so that if some of them are hit, at least not all of them are hit. And now we have over 22,000 varieties of vegetables and fruits being circulated among small farmers and and gardeners through seed exchanges, 180 community-based seed libraries in public libraries around the country where we can easily access and evaluate which of these varieties grow together well in our own conditions. We're talking with uh, Gary Paul Nepen. He is a... Uh... Uh, he's, he's been uh, called a, a pioneer in the local food movement and seed-saving community by Utney Reader, Mother Earth, Mother Earth News, New York Times, Bioneers, Time Magazine. He's the W.K. Kellogg Endowed Chair in Sustainable Food Systems at University of Arizona Southwest Center, where he works with students, faculty, and nonprofits to build a more just, nutritious, and sustainable climate-resilient food shed. And he's also personally engaged. He, uh, he has a, a farm, he and his wife. Uh, he's an orchard keeper wild foods forager, pollinator habitat restorationist. Uh, his small farm is in Patagonia, Arizona, near the Mexico border. He's author or uh, editor of uh, 24 books, and uh, including Growing Food in a Hotter, Drier Land, Lessons from Desert Farmers on Adapting to Climate Uncertainty. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495. You can uh, join us uh, on our Facebook page at UPR or at Utah Public Radio Facebook page, and you can join us online Probably the best place today is upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We're going to take a brief break. Uh, more with Gary Nabhan on Access Utah following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Dr. Carl Breitenbach, practicing evidence-based family medicine at Basin Clinic in Vernal since 1987, with emphasis in complete family health, including obstetric and pediatric care. Information is at basinclinic.com. There's a lab at Harvard where Professor Dan Gilbert studies happiness, which means people ask him all the time. Hey, Doc, what's the secret of happiness? So what is it? Well, let's just think about it for a moment. Is there really a possibility, A, that it's a secret and only I know it, and B, that it's a secret at all? Decoding happiness, that's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Coming up today at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Glad you've joined me today. My guest is Gary Paul Nabhan. He is W.K. Kellogg Endowed Chair in Sustainable Food Systems at University of Arizona Southwest Center. He and his wife uh, run a uh, small farm where they uh, implement some of the principles, I guess all of the principles that he uh, preaches. Um, and uh, his uh, books, uh, well, there's 24 in, or so in number uh, that he's authored or edited, including Growing Food in a Hotter, Drier Land, Lessons from Desert Farmers on Adapting to Climate Uncertainty. You can join the conversation at our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, where Aaron Brewer uh, comments, love this guy. So you've, you've got a fan in Utah, uh, Gary Nepad, and I imagine many fans. And uh, you can join us on our website at... Uh, or at our email address, rather, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. And you can join us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Uh, you say, uh, Gary Nepen, 
that climate adaptation is inherently place-based adaptation. You're, you, it's, it's local solutions, I guess. Well, that's right. In other words, um, if you think about the heterogeneity of the landscape in Utah alone, it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. We can have a, a climate-ready crop uh, out on 200 million acres from coast to coast and think that it's going to respond well in so many different climates and soils across the continent. And so it really means building on the place-based knowledge of traditional farmers and people who watch the weather and know soils and know uh, weather patterns in your own locality. And I think that's why this is really a wonderful adventure. <clears throat> it's uh, encouraging us to learn about our own home place in a way we should have been doing all along, and frankly, most farmers do that. But it's really sort of spreading out our network to, to listen to uh, cues and indicators that we may not have been listening to before. You emphasize uh, in, in this book that this is not just individual action, it's going to require community action. You, you talk several times about you and your neighbor taking action. That's right. Um, I live uh, just above the 60-acre farm run by the nonprofit Native Seed Search that I started 30 years ago, and we collectively do a lot of projects, pollinator hedgerows and, and uh, green belts and... Uh, um, introduction of milkweeds, and you can't bring back pollinators, whether it's honeybees or bumblebees or monarch butterflies, if you're one little tiny acre organic farm and you're surrounded by people that are uh, spraying herbicides that um, uh, frankly decimate those, uh, populations inadvertently. It's not that farmers want to uh, kill monarchs, but that is going on on over 170 million acres right now uh, because of the untargeted way we use herbicides. I'm not speaking up against herbicides. It's it's like any other tool. Uh, we need to use it for its purpose in a very specific way. So if one farmer is doing the right thing, but she or he are surrounded by neighbors who who don't quite see it from the same way, you have um, a diminished uh, success rate from the efforts that the innovative farmer does. That's why we re really need to not villainize our, our neighbors if they have different practices with us, but sort of walk toward the middle and find common ground. Um, Aziz Bouzbifa, uh, his vision is pretty inspirational. I was, <laughs> I was uh, you know, plotting as I was reading this. Um, he, he must have that effect on the people that uh, that he meets. But but not just the oasis that he is restoring, but he has this vision for interconnected oases. I don't know throughout the region, throughout the world. What what is what is your vision? That's right. Uh, for Aziz and myself, oases are really um, tangible landscapes as well as metaphors. That it's trying to. Um, wisely use what water resources we have in the places that are best fitted to them uh, to create sort of an archipelago or a series of stepping stones of uh, food diversity that then become the refuges and the, the uh, sourcing areas if other parts of our landscape get devastated. So. For instance, in our own pond, we're introducing three endangered fish and endangered uh, frog, and around the pond, uh, six rare plant species that have declined as water uh, in our streams have declined. And we see replenishing this landscape with them as well as the many crop species I grow as part of that oasis building. And then the oases must be interconnected and exchange ideas and change, exchange seeds and fruit tree varieties. And so I'm doing this with farmers all the way down to the tip of Baja, California, uh, through an oasis initiative that we have that is 
loosely affiliated with UNESCO, seeing what traditional knowledge and traditional seeds in oases need safeguarding to make sure that they're part of the solutions to adapting to climate uncertainty. What do you think is is the impetus, continuing impetus behind the local food movement? Uh, it, it you know it, it seems to me when I talk to people that it's they're not connecting it necessarily to climate uncertainty. There seems to be other impulses behind it. You're you're right on about that. What strikes me is that the food relocalization movement is one of the few things in our country right now bringing people from the. Uh, libertarian Tea Party right and the, the old uh, uh, liberal left together for the same thing so that you can have um, farmers next to each other at farmers markets who don't share uh, political persuasion, faith. They don't even like the same sports teams, but they both agree that, that uh, having more food purchased from our neighbors that goes back into our local economies is good for everyone, uh, conservative or liberal, Republican or Democrat. So I think uh, there's many reasons that people are engaged in uh, local foods, that it's fresh and seasonal and that the tastes are stronger, that you're helping your neighbor, that if you have some bad food, you can trace it back, that uh, you're helping your local economy. And you're having fun. A lot of farmers' markets, of course, are places where people meet and socialize as well now. So I think you're, you're absolutely right. There's many impulses, but I think it has a healing benefit to have all of us together under one kind of umbrella and see that we can collaborate on something as important as this for our communities rather than seeing the kind of divisiveness that we see in Congress and in other uh, public spheres right now. In your biography, you say you've helped forge what you call the Radical Center for Collaborative uh, Conservation among farmers, ranchers, indigenous peoples, environmentalists. Uh, And, of course, you know, living in Arizona, I imagine it's very similar to to Utah. This can be explosive, divisive, (laughs) uh, seemingly intractable. You've you've had some success getting people uh, around the table, as it were? Well, uh, it's been one of the joys of my life. When I originally moved uh, to the West, there was that kind of fighting going on between uh, uh, Ed Abbey and the Earth Firsters in Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona uh, against ranchers. And it always seemed ironic to me because many of of those uh, uh, so-called environmentalists were also friends with ranchers. And um, I, I think that the greatest strides that have been made in the West the last uh, 10 or 15 years are through collaborative conservation initiatives, the Malpai Borderlands Group down on the Arizona-New Mexico border, Grand Canyon Trust, Diablo Trust, many other groups that are bringing ranchers and wildlife enthusiasts and uh, scientists together saying, okay, how can we keep this land from being... Uh, developed, keep it in food production, keep it in wild vegetation, and um, people are are signing this radical center manifesto that's on the Kavira Coalition um, website. That uh, about twelve of us uh, uh, helped write fifteen years ago. I think over thirty thousand people in the West have have. Uh, uh, sign that and adhere to those principles of collaboration rather than confrontation. Do you do you see generally us moving in that direction? You, do you see, are you hopeful? Oh, I'm so hopeful. The the ranchers around me here in uh, southern Arizona are doing fantastic innovations. Truly care about the land. They are in no way my enemies, or their knowledge of the land is less than mine. It's it's superior to mine because they're out there every day looking at it and seeing what climate does and what different kinds of grazing practices done. So there's probably been more innovation in uh, uh, range management emerging from the ranching communities themselves in the last 10 years than over the previous century. Mm. If you just joined us, we're talking with Gary Paul Nabhan. He is uh, 
A uh, prominent uh, local food uh, pioneer, seed-saving pioneer, has been certified so by Mother Earth News and the Bioneers and Time Magazine, New York Times. Uh, he is recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award and other honors, and he uh, is associated with the University of Arizona. He's the W.K. Kellogg uh, Endowed Chair in Sustainable Food Systems at University of Arizona Southwest Center. He practices what he preaches. He and his wife uh, run a small farm near the U.S.-Mexico border. He's personally engaged as an orchard keeper, wild foods forager, and pollinator habitat restorationist. Uh, his books include, there are some 24 of them, and uh, one we've been talking most about is Growing Food in a Hotter, Drier Land, Lessons from Desert Farmers on Adapting to Climate Uncertainty. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Love to hear what uh, you're doing on your uh, farm or, or garden uh, and where you fit into the local food movement or or what your uh, what your view is. Uh, perhaps you have a question on uh, what specific type of plant to, to plant. There are many suggestions in this book, Growing Food in a Hotter, Drier Land. And we have one of the experts with us, Gary Paul Navhan. You can join us at our email address, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page as well. Um, so uh, I wonder, I wanted to go back to a comment you made earlier in the program, I made reference to uh, Mormon pioneers, the Mormon communities. Um, and some would say that that's the wrong example, that uh, you know, the Mormon pioneers were going to make the desert blossom as it rose, and, uh, and what has transpired since then is uh, too thirsty of a, of a farming system. Um, what, are, what are some of the positives you take, uh, maybe expand on that, from the Mormon communities, Mormon farming communities? Well, I was specifically speaking about... Uh, the um, Mormon tradition and ethic of food security, which is probably as strong as any group that I've interacted with, except perhaps the Hopi and some of the Navajo um, people in our region. But um, I would say everyone that came to the West uh, from 1860 to 1930 uh, drew upon the uh, snowmelt coming down from the mountains, uh, our rivers and thought that um, that water should rightly belong to agriculture, and we use too much of it. And everyone can say that, uh, that we use too much of it because we thought it was a rather unlimited resource. And when competition with the cities began to increase and it became clear that we were also overtapping our groundwater aquifers, many farmers, for either economic or for just good management reasons, began to, to re- reduce their water consumption per acre. And in the West, uh, water use for crops has gone down about 25% over the last 15 to 20 years. And at the same time, water consumption per capita in places like Phoenix has gone up over 20% per capita for new residents. Why? Because many of the new residents in Phoenix are coming from better watered places in the east or midwest so they're not used to conserving water so i think we actually have a lot to learn not just from mormon uh, farmers but how many of us have cut our costs by a quarter for any (laughs) commodity that we use to make our living and i think they deserve credit for that now are there still problems out there of course there are and there's enormous competition for water between agriculture and food security needs and residential needs. We're not going to kick people out of cities because we need more uh, water for farmlands and tell them to go back home to New York or or Minnesota. But, But the point is that we really do need to think of water and food as strategic resources for our future, uh, food security and national security. Yeah, there are many many areas where that that water touches. Uh, food being a principal one. What in many ways, water is food, and food is water, isn't it? That's right. Uh, what have you talked a little bit about uh, your latest uh, blog post? An uh, interesting uh, series of blogs on your website, which is by the way GaryNabhan dot com, and you're talking about um, let's see, food micro enterprises in in the Tucson area. You're 
You're applauding those, uh, saying that they should be supported, and that this is an interesting interconnection between food production, food security, economic security, uh, uh, jobs, and the economy. Well, look, I think most of us have felt the hit that's happened to our own uh, incomes and certainly the suffering that's happened to friends of ours that have become unemployed or underemployed since the 209 downturn in our national and even our global economy. And what a number of communities have documented through their own studies is that one of the quickest ways to begin community economic recovery is by jump-starting uh, small food and farming micro-enterprises, low capitalization businesses for things like mobile food wagons. Some of those can be started for as little as $50,000 uh, uh, in the first year, and then as income uh, uh, is generated, it can allow for the gradual expansion and adding more employees. So now Tucson, that was extraordinarily hard hit by the economic downturn and the immigration debate and the loss of 40,000 jobs statewide of people that used to come over from Mexico to the U.S. as tourists to buy products here. Our, our city now has more mobile food carts than any place except Los Angeles. And these are small family entrepreneurs start with very little resources, work hard, and um, they're generating great food change. Many of them are sourcing from local produce and fruit growers and, and meat producers, and so there's a multiplier effect uh, of two or three times higher return to the community by supporting these locally owned business than uh, supporting the Taco Bells and McDonald's of the world. I'm not disparaging the food in Taco Bells or McDonald's. I'm just saying that if you look at it in purely community economic terms, the locally owned businesses like these food microenterprises bring back far more jobs to our communities. And we need to tell our city fathers that, that we don't necessarily need to bring in um, more big factories or, or Walmarts. What we need to do is invest in the food and farming uh, enterprises that need our help at this point, and that will be a great return on investment. So the, this, this microenterprises, local food, is that a way to combat food insecurity? We, it's often been said that, uh, you know, the huge agribusiness and the production of, of food in, in America is, is awesome to behold, and yet there are pockets of, uh, of areas with, with, with high food insecurity. Well, yeah, you're, you're right that, that you go to places like uh, southern Illinois that's our, our grain belt, our corn belt, and, and um, people are obese or hungry, the twin um, uh, devils of, of um, poverty. And so um, I think one of the interesting things we found is that um, if we really work on the poverty alleviation and the uh, food security issues together, one helps the other. We're not going to have people eating right if they have so limited incomes uh, for their household that they, they have to go to uh, a big box store and just buy a 10-pound bag of Cheetos or popcorn. If they're going to get um, nutritionally dense calories that that really help their kids' health and, and uh, growth. It's going to come from fresh local foods in independent um, stores more than it's going to come from, from um, those big, big box stores. And those independently owned businesses are going to create far more jobs in our community, whether all those jobs have to do with food or not. It could be uh, carpentry or or dry cleaning associated with the, the tablecloths and all of that, but it generates more jobs. So we have to look at this in a systemic way rather than thinking that local food is good on its own. If it doesn't create more local jobs, it's, it's of limited value.
Uh, you have uh, promoted um, uh, native foods in an, in an effort to uh, prevent diabetes. And I imagine there are some other illnesses as well. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, very bluntly, I saw um, many Native American friends uh, die from the symptoms, side effects, and consequences of adult-onset diabetes when I worked on a number of Indian reservations in the 1970s and 1980s. And these were bright, productive, fun, caring people whose uh, loss from the world grieved me deeply. And so at one point, after losing a number of friends, I just took two years off and studied as much as I could about what it was in the traditional Native American diets that protected people from... um, succumbing to diabetes and other nutrition-related diseases. We found that their protective chemicals are called secondary chemicals or nutraceutical chemicals. I don't care about the names as much as the fact that they slowly, you slowly digest uh, things like mesquite or acorns or, or bison or, or other foods. And um, the sugars in those plant foods are slowly absorbed and so blood sugar levels do not peak as high, and insulin sensitivity, the metabolism that we all need to properly process the foods we eat, is much better regulated when these traditional diets like uh, include foods like uh, prickly pear cactus pads or chia seeds or acorns. Now, many of these foods I can get in local grocery stores every day of the week today, and that was not true 25 years ago. And some tribal communities now have major programs integrating the reintroduction of native foods into children's diets and healthy exercise programs. And uh, we still have are facing a financial cliff, a fiscal cliff that's really a nutritional cliff. If we don't take care of our children's diets, by 2030, expect a $1.3 trillion medical bill, and one in three every people, one out of every three people going into a hospital will be going in for the symptoms of diabetes nationwide. Hmm. So that's an enormous cost, not only fiscally, but emotionally and socially. If, if someone is limited in their activities, uh, end up on dialysis machines, spend most of their uh, elderly years in hospitals rather than mentoring younger people. And I think it's the major issue affecting our food system and our health and the major potential driver of why we should change our food systems. We're talking with Gary Paul Nabhan. He's uh, author of uh, some 24 books, uh, one of them, Growing Food in a Hotter, Drier Land, Lessons from Desert Farmers on Adapting to Climate Uncertainty. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we'll uh, talk a bit about uh, another book, uh, Food, Genes, and Culture, Eating Right for Your Origins. Very interesting. Uh, among his books, Coming Home to Eat, The Pleasures and Politics of Local Foods. Nabhan is the recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award and many other uh, honors. He's the W.K. Kellogg Endowed Chair in Sustainable Food Systems at the University of Arizona Southwest Center. And he and his wife work a small farm on the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, We would love to get your perspective. Love to know what you're growing in your garden, your response to uh, some of the things we've been talking about. The uh, number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can reach us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Or join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Another 10 minutes or so left in the conversation. More following a break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Common Ground Outdoor Adventures, presenting the benefit premiere of the Make a Hero film, The Movement, One Man Joins an Uprising, narrated by Robert Redford and Warren Miller, Thursday, February 20th at 6.45 p.m. at the Kane Lyric Theater in Logan. Information at 435-713-0288. 
Utah State University Online was recently recognized by U.S. News & World Report for its online bachelor's degree program based upon student engagement, faculty credentials, peer reputation, student services, and technology. More than 200 universities were ranked and included public, private, and for-profit institutions. Congratulations to USU for its recent recognition. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Pleased to have uh, for the hour is my guest, Gary Paul Nabhan, author of uh, some 24 books, including Growing Food in a Hotter, Drier Land, Food, Genes, and Culture, Eating Right for Your Origins, and Coming Home to Eat, The Pleasures and Politics of Local Foods. Nabhan is the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award and many other honors. He is uh, with the University of Arizona, holds the W.K. Kellogg Endowed Chair in Sustainable Food Systems at University of Arizona Southwest Center. And uh, we have him on for another uh, eight minutes or so. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495. You can join us on email at upraxis at gmail.com and on our Utah Public Radio Facebook uh, page. Uh, Gary Nabhan, I'm interested in uh, in food, genes, and culture, eating right for your origins. Um, what are you talking about here? Well, you know, we're not all uh, born with equal... Um, predilection to absorbing and uh, healthfully processing some foods that we're exposed to. We all know about food allergies, uh, but most people don't know that about a third of the world's population also has gene food interactions that potentially disrupt their capacity to uh, digest and absorb uh, certain foods in a healthful way. Favism, uh, a, uh, an affliction genetic, uh, genetically predetermined um, uh, interaction with fava beans um, can be devastating if um, young men in the Mediterranean eat too much fava beans. It reduces the oxygen levels in their um, bloodstream and helps them urinate beautiful colors that horrify them. <laughs> but the point is it also protects them from malaria um, through some very interesting mechanisms. And we can say the same thing with a number of other interactions between um, um, ethnic populations, genetic makeup, and their traditional diets. So uh, the bottom line message of this is uh, all of us shouldn't necessarily go on the Mediterranean diet or the Asian diet or the South Beach diet. We need to carefully think about our uh, genetic origins and what foods uh, our metabolisms are adapted to. And that's some really fun and exciting, albeit complex, detective work that many people are doing for themselves, thinking rather than thinking that there's a one-size-fits-all diet. And I should just say one more thing about that. What we know about uh, miracle diets is that none of them really work uh, well for people beyond six to nine months, that certain things begin to disrupt their efficacy. Why is it? Well, all of us don't respond equally well to certain um, um, you know, miracle diets, and that shouldn't be surprising. We're talking with Gary Napan, author of uh, many books, including Growing Food in a Hotter, Drier Land. Uh, we have about five minutes uh, left in the conversation. We have a caller, Alice, uh, in Moab. Uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Well, hi. First, I'd like to say thanks for a very interesting program. I'm enjoying the current topic, but my question relates to something that Gary Paul Napan said just a few minutes ago. Um, I live in a small valley whose waters drain into the Colorado River, and it's uh, sort of a popular wisdom here that it's a far better thing to keep the water that passes through our valley to use it and, and use the soil as a reservoir and hold on to it rather than letting it go back down into the river where downstream some developer is going to say, oh, we have ample water, so we could build XYZ. So what do you say to that? 
Well, I think that uh, intuitive sense of uh, of uh, holding water in its place rather than letting it um, all go down to our cities is important to put in a historic context. No water that I know of has ever been taken away from agricultural food production or, for that matter, from wildlife habitats and brought back. Once cities get it, once we say, oh, there's a drought, let's cut back on uh, agricultural water use and give farmers only uh, one in eight irrigations, as they're doing for my brother-in-law, a pecan grower in Las Cruces, New Mexico, that water never returns to the farmers. So it's it's a slippery slope. Once um, cities make uh, a claim on that water, um, uh, our politicians never want to say, okay, now the city is excessively using water. Let's cut back on them because the developers then complain that we're uh, limiting economic growth and their profit margins. I think we really need a full debate on how to balance urban and rural water uses for food security. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, I'm losing my voice for food security. And so I think there's some um, justifiable fears among farmers and ranchers that, that cities are going to continue to usurp more and more of the water supplies that were formerly dedicated to our um, food supplies. And I'm in a minority among Arizona uh, scientists in, in that opinion. Most of them feel that if the cities outbid the the farm, so be it. Alice, does that answer your question? Um, I, well, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sort of disincentivizes us to conserve water if we feel that it's just going to be wasted downstream. Hmm. So that's that's right. And so I, I'm not for um, for lavishly using water just so that um, you know we can avoid the use it or lose it kind of thing. But, but what I'm proposing is that uh, watershed councils and counties do uh, a future projection of their food needs and the water uh, required to um, grow that food um, for food security purposes and, and then do their water planning on the basis of that rather than letting uh, Salt Lake, Phoenix, L.A., and Las Vegas drive the entire discussion about the Colorado River or, or other sources of water. And, and so I think we, we really have to change the dynamics in our state legislatures about this and, and have town halls where we say, do we want all the water um, that we may need in 15 years to, to be reallocated to urban growth downstream, and how can we conserve it today, but not lose the potential for using it in the future. And we are approaching the end of the conversation. We'll have to leave it there. Alice, thank you so much for the call. Thank thank you, you Alice. That was great. Thanks. Uh, Interesting comment. Um, And uh, we have been talking with Gary Paul Nabhan, whose uh, books include Growing Food in a Hotter, Drier Land, and many others. He's with the University of Arizona. He uh, runs a farm as well near the uh, 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 U.S.-Mexico border. And it's been a pleasure, Gary Paul Napham. Thanks. Well, I so appreciate all the good work done in your community and hope to have more dialogue with your community members. Thank you so much. And hopefully you come back. Thanks. Um, Gary Paul Navhan was in Logan for uh, a presentation at Utah State University in October of uh, last year. This conversation can continue. Just go to our uh, Facebook page. You can uh, uh, continue this at uh, upraxis at gmail.com and uh, uh, visit us on our web page, upr.org. For producers Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Square One Printing, 630 West, 200 North, Logan, personalized printing for home or business, including wedding announcements, thank you cards, and family histories. Information at squareoneprinting.com. And Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering 100% whole grain raisin, oatmeal, date, and millet breads.
Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. This is Linda Kirvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society. Wind is inevitable on a spinning planet with an atmosphere and a sun. At our latitude, westerlies prevail, but east winds do occur now and then. Locally, canyons daily exhale denser, cooler mountain air that drains into valleys. In Logan, trees blown by these canyon winds tilt westward. Occasionally, though, the whole Wasatch Front is whipped by howling gales from the east, leaving behind shredded shingles, snapped tree limbs, and rolled tractor trailers. These forceful east wind events have a regional weather origin that is intensified by local topography. It begins with a strong high-pressure cell parked over southwestern Wyoming. Its descending dry air circulates clockwise. Somewhere to the south or southwest, a low-pressure cell is needed. The strong air pressure gradient between high and low generates a wind that races westward from Wyoming. The surging wind pours over the entire Wasatch Front like water over a flat boulder in rapids. These winds then plunge downslope, blowing quickest where the descent is long, steep, and unobstructed. The downrushing air slams onto the flat benches and valley floors. In November 2011, such winds ripped Centerville with 100-mile-per-hour gusts. Where these so-called mountain wave events blow regularly, they often have names. The Mistral and Fane winds howl down from the Alps, Chinooks race down the Rocky Mountain Front Range, and the Santa Ana's blast Southern California. The steep altitudinal descent of these parched winds compressively heats the air. A sparker flame soon transforms to a raging wildfire when fanned by a drying Fane or Santa Ana wind. Europe's fanes are also known to spark short tempers and stress. Perhaps the sporadic easterly gales that whip the Wasatch Front and Cache Valley also deserve an evocative name. For now, you at least know the answer to what's blowing in the east wind. Thanks to Martin Schroeder at the Utah Climate Center for insights and the stream boulder analogy. This is Linda Kirvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society. Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, KCEU 89.7 Price, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Stay tuned for the TED Radio Hour coming up next, followed by a performance today. It is now 10 o'clock. Thank you for listening to Utah Public Radio.